Hello, this is the New Glarus Brewing Podcast with Dan Carey. Uh, welcome back. Today I'm actually very, very excited because we are going to be delving into a topic that I am supremely interested in because it's one of my favorite kind of beers for a myriad of different reasons. And Dan Carey is probably one of the best persons on this planet that we can actually talk to about this subject, and that is sour beers. Uh, Dan has been making a sour beer for almost his entire career, and in some corners of this world, New Glarus is known known as one of the best sour beer breweries that are going. So with that being said, how are you doing today, Dan? Good, good. All is well. Yeah, I'm very, uh, I'm very happy to be here with you today because... Uh, my introduction to sour beers was not entirely that long ago or, you know, sort of my um, awakening as to what this beer style really is and what it all encompasses. So I'm very excited to be talking to you about this because the stuff I don't know about this kind of beer is sort of legion. So uh, can you first start just by telling us, A, you know, what is a sour beer? Uh, and B, do you recall like when you fell in love with this style of beer? Yeah, well, uh, sour beer is uh, I don't I don't really like that term sour beer. It makes it sound uh, almost derogatory. Like like the term dry beer might be better, but of course, dry beer is already taken. So we'll we will use the term sour beer. But you know, a sour beer should be a, a harmonious beer. It should be like like a dry white wine. The sourness should be integrated into the flavor of the beer. So you know, in technical terms, that might be uh, an acidity level of. 0.3 to less than 1% total acidity. So it's a marriaged beer. Uh, it's like champagne. Mm -hmm. Dry champagne has a lot of sourness. And that's where you, um, you know, like champagne, it's sort of tied to a region, right? So that's where you get like the term lambic from, right? Because sure. this is where sure. this, this sort of came from. Right, right. We as American brewers, though, uh, have a tendency to adopt traditions of from lots of different areas of the world and of course belgium is a has been a leader in the production of sour beer so certainly we've learned a lot from them very cool so do you do you remember um you know going over to belgium and and, and trying these beers and what you thought so i guess my question is i know we know you spent a lot of time sort of in germany uh studying uh, did you ever get over to belgium to sort of go to the source of these things when you were first thinking about this yeah you know i, I guess I was really, I was, first time I ever had a, really a Belgian sour beer was in the early 80s. I was working in a small brewery in Montana and um, uh, my boss was an importer, a, a wholesaler, mm -hmm. and uh, he had uh, a Leafman's Golden Bond, which was in that nice paper uh, uh, wrapped uh, um, 750 and 375 milliliter bottles cork finish and uh it was a sour brown ale that was really harmoniously malty and caramely and sweet and had a nice twang to it and almost a mini amount of an acetic uh, bite to it and that's what really got me thinking about this style of beer because for a long time that was sort of my desert island beer that's a uh, was a great beer um and uh when when I, i've told the story about us uh, being in Germany when I was working as a brewing apprentice. And we made a trip over to Belgium and we, this was uh, in the mid eighties and we went and visited some of the iconic breweries. We rented a car and we drove around Belgium, uh, Deb and I and our two daughters. And um, it was the middle of winter 
so it was cold and windy and um we uh you know we visited orval and you know all of the kind of iconic breweries and in those days this was before beer tourism N- nobody really was doing this so so we were pretty well welcomed everywhere we went and we went to um uh to lindemann's brewery and at that time lindemann's was a very small uh farmhouse brewery tiny lambic brewery out in the kind of in the in the in a in the middle of the country uh at, at this point uh it's it's grown up around the brewery and they've certainly expanded and have a very modern brewery but in those days it was a simple farmhouse and in fact if you if you watch uh michael jackson's beer hunter the episode about belgium you'll see what i saw when i was there which is a very rustic brewery but in any event we went to the farmhouse cold uh, february morning and knocked on the door and um uh, you know, my French and Dutch is fairly much, fairly non-existent, but knocked on the door and Rene Lindemann answered the door. Rene Lindemann is sort of an iconic figure in Lambic Brewing. Uh, maybe, uh, listeners may know Cuvée Rene, which mm-hmm. was, uh, his, his really nice Lambic beer. But in any event, knocked on the door and I said, Hey, I'm a, I'm a brewer from America and I'm wondering if I can see your brewery. And, and nobody was really doing it in those days. In fact, I did the same thing at Pilsner Urquell when it was um, under communist rule, which was quite an experience. And and in those days, people were proud to show you around. They would spend a long time with you because to have an American uh, drop out of the sky and be interested in your beer was, I would imagine, somewhat flattering. And they, they were proud. So Rene uh, Lindemann spent a better part of a day showing us how he made his beer. And I took lots of notes. Uh, and he, he brewed in a very traditional way with oak tanks and a cool ship and turbot mashing and age tops and all of the things one would expect. So that kind of stuck in my mind as uh, something that would be really fun to try to emulate because I was a fan of his beers. I was a fan of his uh, Creek beer. And so I spent about six years trying to um, figure out the combination of how to make a spontaneous beer, spontaneous beer with cherries. And um, I was working for a large brewery at that time. And so on the weekends, I would kind of play around with this. I had, you know, I had, I had beer uh, fermenting in the attic. I had beer fermenting in the, in the garage and in the, in the basement. And um, it, it was not so easy. It's a very complicated beer. It's on one hand, it's very simple because it's spontaneously fermented and kind of nature just takes its course. But um, you have to kind of guide it. And it took me a while to figure it out. But after six years, we pretty much had something that um, that that I thought was good and Deb liked it, which is the ultimate litmus test for me. And um, at that point, that's really why we built the brewery. We built Nuglaris Brewing Company because Deb said, you know, there's, I think there's a market for this type of beer. We should build you a brewery mm-hmm. and you can make this beer. Now, when we started, we started out with Edelpils and then we made Ufta. So Belgian Red was our third beer. Yeah. But really, we built the brewery really with the idea that Belgian Red would be our flagship beer. Wow, that, that, that is really, really interesting because right now we're talking about, so it's your third beer, we're talking about somewhere between 93 and 95, right? Yeah, somewhere, yep, exactly. Yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood and, you know, <laughs> sort of to bet the, the farm, for a lack of a better word, on, you know, on starting a business to build, to, to brew a very specialty beer that's by all, you know, by all accounts, a great beer, but at that point, a complete question mark as far as marketability in America goes. Is that 
that takes some real faith in, in your product and that you didn't rush it either that you know you spent six years sort of playing with this recipe like I would have to imagine somewhere in the middle there you had something okay but had the sort of you know foresight or just wherewithal to say well okay is not gonna gonna do it so can, can you talk a little bit about when you knew you had Belgian red sort of dialed in and why you had so much faith in that particular beer well, you know, it was really Deb that had the faith in the beer more than me. <laughs> yeah. Um, to me, it was an academic exercise to try to uh, try to build this beer. And yeah, you're right. You you know, making a beer that was was okay is really not um, what you want to, as you say, bet the farm on. Uh, we wanted to really check and double check and make sure. Like for example, we started out with Bing cherries, and eh, that doesn't really work that well. We ended up Mont- with Montmorency cherries, and that worked well for us. So it produced a beer that was unique. Uh, certainly in um, the Belgian tradition, they're they're really not using Montmorency cherries. So so our beer has come out of somewhat of a our own twist mm-hmm. on on the style. So it, it was inspired by the Belgian tradition. But it was our own own beer, and you know Deb's feeling has always been that we don't want to do what everybody else is doing. At that time, in the early '90s, most of the craft brewers were making beer in the English tradition because yeah. they'd come out of home brewing, and home brewing came out of English home brewing textbooks, and so everybody was making a pale ale, a porter, and a stout. So we did not want to do that. We wanted to be somewhat unique. And that's why we thought Belgian Red was kind of like way out in left field. And so, therefore, we could find a niche. So, we're playing our own game. And also, making a um, making a lager beer, making uh, Edelpils mm-hmm. uh, and a Bach beer was also somewhat unique. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, what you're basically, you know, what you're basically building here on your foundation it is, you know, starting an atypical brewery and just saying, you know, I hope these, I hope these things are going to find their eyes. I know the qualities there. I know, I, I believe in what I've done with them. So now I just have to, I just have to count on the audience being there. So with that being said, do you remember your first couple, like when you first sent Belgian Red out into the greater world and how it was received and what people felt about it and, and that sort of thing? Well, yeah, Belgian Red was very, very well received from the start. Mm-hmm. It's never been a huge seller for us, but it's been consistent. It does well year after year. The recipe, ironically, is exactly the same as it was from day one. Uh, so over 30 years, it really hasn't changed. We, we're still using uh, cherries from Door County. We really haven't haven't made any deviations, and people people accepted the beer. When we would enter enter beer competitions, we usually did very well. When we would enter, when we would go to beer festivals, we always had the longest lines because people really wanted to have the beer because it was so different and so unique and something that they had never tasted before. And even to this day, uh, a lot of people will, it's sometimes our fruit beers, maybe it could be a Belgian red or raspberry tart or serendipity or strawberry rhubarb. One of, one of our fruit beers will be the first keg to go empty. So people really do love the beer, but you know, it wasn't easy to figure it out. I remember the, the first, the first tank of beer that we made, um, Deb had a, um, special, uh, uh, keg tapping that she had arranged. And so I, I had to have the keg there and ready to go at like six o'clock that night at a tavern. And it was kind of a big deal and radio was talking about it and everybody was excited. So I went in in the morning and ha- had a finished tank of beer, a lager tank with the beer in it. And, um, 
uh, I uh, had a little tiny um, sheet filter um, that was really more like a wine filter than a brewery filter. But uh, and I started to filter the beer and I ran a couple of gallons uh, through the filter and it plugged up. So I thought, uh oh, so I cleaned the filter and started back up again. And I could only get two uh, gallons of beer to get through the filter at a time. So I, um, I was in a bit of a panic, but I kept, kept, you know, kept pushing, pulling, trying, praying. And uh, it took me the better part of a day to fill a keg of beer uh, for this, uh, for this tapping. And I threw it in the back of the pickup truck and Deb and I raced up to Madison from New Glarus and we made it in time. And uh, the beer was a big hit, but of course no one knew that I, Took me all day to get the darn beer <laughs> to go through happen. the filter. Yeah, right. Because there's so many cherries in the beer that we learned that really uh, we need to we need to give the beer time. We need to let the beer age for an extended period of time to get the fruit to settle out. Otherwise, it's a um, it's too uh, too chunky. <laughs> well, that's always it's always funny when you're doing something for like the first time or like the first handful of times and. And you're really working out that process, and and but you have a deadline, like you know, like X is going to happen at seven o'clock. Yeah, like that is going to be the day when you know the 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 five steps before that are going to screw yeah. up, no matter what. That's yeah, just- it's like the nightmare you have when you realize that you know you're dreaming, and you realize that you have to go take an exam and you haven't studied for it or something like that. You know, one of those terror nightmares. So, yeah, but I was awake. Well, so we talked a little bit about how you discovered. Uh, these beers, how you sort of learned about them. And it was an interesting thing you you said where, you know, you just walked up to the Lindemann Farmhouse Brewery, knocked on the door and yeah. Lindemann answers. And he says, I will show you around. Yeah. <laughs> I will answer questions. That does not happen these days, does it? No. Uh, brewers are collaborative and very generous and kind people. But nowadays, uh, there are there's so much competition, so many brewers and uh, so many so, so much competition that I think um, people are less willing to open their door, particularly in Belgium, uh, to, to foreigners that yeah. show up and want to <laughs> learn how to brew their beer because they make their living by selling beer and it's becoming more difficult. Well, and uh, it, it, and as, as the styles sort of progressed through to this modern craft beer era, we've, we've talked about it before where, like you said, brewing's a collaboration, but there's some things we won't. That's right. About. It seems like the sour beer, the lambic styles, the the dry beers, or the fruit forward beers, these are the these are the recipes that brewers. This is where they're like, no, this is my alchemy. Yeah, very much so. I've been uh, I've been to uh, lambic breweries and have very uh, nice talk, and we're drinking beer and having nice discussions. But uh, there are some subjects that are taboo that that brewers will not discuss. And even with me and our fruit beer, I very rarely discuss the uh, finer points, the details of of how we make our fruit beer, I, I don't, uh, or, or our sour beers, I kind of, um, for the same reason, once you figure out something unique, it's not written in a text, at least yeah. it's not written in a textbook in the English language. It may be in a 120 year old, uh, uh, uh Flemish or, or French, uh, textbook, but it's certainly not in English. How, can you, can you, can you, do you have a rough count of how many times your phones rang with somebody on the other line going, can you tell uh, yeah. me how you brewed Belgian yeah. red? No, we lost count. We lost count on that one. Yeah. Well, as we're talking about this, it's really, you know, what's really striking me as unique about your sour program in particular. And uh, just to go back to that one point, uh, sorry, listeners, you are not going to get a how-to on how to brew Belgian red out of this episode today. Uh, I will not even try for you. 
but your sour program sort of has these two, um, you know, these two tributaries that make make the whole, right? You have your very fruit forward sour beers uh, yep. in Belgian red and raspberry tart and serendipity and sour rhubarb or yeah, sour rhubarb, strawberry rhubarb. But then you also have this other tributary in these very dry, either fruited or unfruited sours. Yep. Uh, can you can you tell me a little bit why you have these two sort of passions in this and where this sort of stems from? Well, uh, um, it, it's human nature. We as a species love the taste of fruit, mm-hmm. and uh, that's clear. And fruit is a combination of sweet and, and sour. Yeah, it's got uh, a sweet. It's got a lot of energy, and it's got. But it's got to have a twang behind it to mm-hmm. balance it. If it doesn't, if you don't have both, uh, it's out of balance. And uh, when things are overly sour, we we as a species reject it. So we need a little bit of both. So whether you're making a dry beer or a fruit forward beer, that balance is what I'm always considering. Uh, the And we don't really market the beers per se. We brew beer and we put it on the shelf and the customer decides. I've s- said that many times. We, we are driven by what our customers choose. And most people gravitate towards our... Um, Fruit forward beers like Belgian Red, Raspberry Tart, Strawberry Rhubarb, Serendipity, um, Crambic, mm-hmm. uh, those types Probably of beers. Probably one of my favorites. I love Crambic. Yeah, Crambic is, uh, is a very unique beer. It really is. Um, and, but we also make dry beers. You know, we make, we made, we just made one with, uh, that was, uh, 50% grape must, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and beer. And this is uh, in R&D. R- 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 yeah. And se- sold out of the brewery in half liter bottles. And they're very well received. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're and, and also um, very sour blackberry is a perfect example of, of a beer that's, I think, somewhat iconic. Yeah. Um, but it's a very small market. Um, it's probably, I don't know, one one hundredths or less of our, of our ratio of, of fruit forward to dry beer. And that's just the way it is. But but for me, uh, I, I really enjoy um, uh, uh, brewing the dry beers, just like I like uh, brute champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, although brute champagne does have a mini bit of sugar added to it, but still uh, a, a dry beer uh, like um, uh, the various ones we've made, including very sour blackberry, uh, appeal to me. And they're not big sellers, but they're fun to make. And there is a segment of our customers that are, are very important to me. Uh, and I, I like to brew beers for them. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought uh, that beer up and uh, sort of the R&D, the R&D program of sours, because, you know, I think over over the years and I, and I, I wonder if I have my history right here. Your first R and your you know your first R and D beers were I think you did two women as an R and D fairly early on, but then you did like a a, a, a Guza is that how it's pronounced? Yep, yep, yep. As an R and D, and then it started progressing more into the into the sours. There, did that just come naturally? As this is a this seems like a good home for my sour program in these R and D beers, or at least the more esoteric versions of of these sour beers. Well, R and D was kind of a, a a little bit of a joke because R and D obviously means research and development, but it also meant Randy and Dan mm-hmm. because uh, Randy and I kind of work together. Uh, now we have a large group of of really smart people in the brewery, but it started with Randy and I, and and Randy and I are still uh, we still work together to come up with some of these um, uh, interesting beers, but they're not uh, usually commercially um, winners. They're mm-hmm. more esoteric and 
if if for example we sold in every single state of the country, I bet we could do really well with beer like very sour blackberry. We we could we could probably sell enough to, to make it viable. But mm-hmm. since we're only selling in Wisconsin, I mean think about how much how much lambic or, or sour brown ale is sold in Wisconsin. It's not very much. Yeah. So it's a very small part of our business. Um but uh we we did it Deb um was supportive of it, uh, not because it was commercially interesting, but it, it was a um, interesting um, project for Randy and I. And frankly, when we brew these types of beers, we learn things that maybe are applicable to our more commercial beers. But really, to be honest, in the end, it's, it's, it's just because it's a, a, a fun, it's fun for us and it's fun for our customers. Yeah, and that's and it's great that you make that in that that sort of distinction pretty clear because one of the things I think that's just wonderful about the way your mind works on this stuff and the and the way you're you know what is really a collaborative business relationship between you and Deb is that you have these passion projects and you know like you said they are received very well um, by the people who really enjoy these things but they're never going to be like you know you, you know. Vintage 15 is not going to be, you know, the flagship is not going to outsell whatever. But then you build, you know, a whole building around this program in, in, in the, um, oh, the uh, Wild Fruit Cave down at down at Riverside, which was, you know, uh, a fairly sizable addition. It has one of the largest cool ships. Yeah, in, in I think country. it's probably and, the largest cool ship. It's a 100, 100 barrel, 120 hectoliter cool ship. So it's, I, I don't know of anyone that are bigger than that in and, the country. Well, know? and it's just a gorgeous building it's housed in too. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I guess Katie, the, my, my daughter, uh, your wife, uh, uh, designed that. And with yeah. Deb, they both did it together. And Katie was a project manager to build it. Yeah. So this, you know, this investment, these wonderful wood beams and this cool ship, and this place to house your your gorgeous wood photos. Uh, I guess the question I have, uh, I have is, you know, you're making this decision uh, uh, to to basically buttress a, a passion of yours. Is is that something you find just pays off down the line in general, or when you're when you're deciding to do something like that, what's your what's your thinking like? Uh, well, that's a good question. We uh, I, I guess. Directly, um, we make all of our fruit beers in that building. So Mm -hmm. it's not just our dry beers that are made there. It's our fruit forward beers are made in that building. So, uh, but, but to have a a relatively, uh, grand building to make these beers, uh, is somewhat unique. And it does speak to Deb's, um, trust in, in my vision. And she is very, I mean, I'm very lucky to have a wife that, uh, trusts me and, you know, I, I guess I, I would say uh, indulges indulges me. However, on one hand, but on the other hand, it uh, fruit beer is important to our business. Yeah. As I said, it's not a huge part of our business, but it uh, but it is uh, it does represent who we are, and people look forward to our fruit beers, and we make a different one every year. So it's it's an important part of our business, even though it's not the largest part of our business. And we've been. Uh, but there is a practical reason why we built that wild fruit cave. We have made um, fruit beer and sour beer since pretty much 1995. We we bought uh, wooden tanks. Um, they were 50 hectoliter to more or less 45 barrel-ish sized tanks. Wooden tanks, wooden uprights that we bought from the Rodney Strong winery out mm-hmm. in Napa. 
in uh, near Napa and um, brought them into our brewery. And so very, very early on, we were making spontaneous beer after I had done this at home testing. And we, we used, we didn't have a cool ship in those days and we were brewing beer in the traditional way. We had aged hops, aged Hollertail hops. We didn't have a cool ship, so we used our louder ton mm-hmm. as a cool ship. So we would we would mash in our louder ton, transfer it to the kettle, clean the louder ton, and and then take the cool the wort back into the um, or excuse me, take the hot wort, put it back into the um, louder ton, open the open the doors of the brew house and the and the manways, and let sit overnight, and then we would pump it into the oak tanks, and that's how we made our fruit beer. So they were spontaneously fermented. Um, and made in the traditional way with the equipment that we had yeah. at hand. Now, the problem with that is that um, this is the same brewery where we're making beers like Spotted Cow and Lagers, and a spontaneous beer, is it's a little bit of a scary thing because uh, you can have cross-contamination with mm-hmm. some of these aggressive bugs, Lactobacillus brevis, uh, Britannomyces that are growing in this wood that are coming from the cool ship. And uh, so what we had to do for years was whenever we made Belgian Red uh, or any of our fruit beers or any of our sour beers, we would stop brewing. We would shut the brewery down. We would bring out our, our hoses that were specific and, and valves and pumps. We had all, we had a separate equipment that was only to be used for making, um, spontaneous beer and fruit beers. And we call these, this equipment, the, the Ebola hoses <laughs> because they were off limits. You couldn't use them yeah. for anything. So the brewery had to be shut down. We would, we would make, we would have our campaign. We would brew the beer and, um, and then once the tank was buttoned up, maybe it would take a week before the fermentation would start to kind of less, you know, wouldn't be foaming over less. So, so there was less of a chance of cross-contamination. Then we would, we would basically baptize the brewery with, with bleach, with chlorine, and then we would start brewing. So as you can imagine, that's a big vulnerability. And, uh, therefore once we we got bigger and bigger and bigger and it was no longer uh, acceptable that risk was no longer acceptable you know when we were a 2000 barrel brewery that was we could we could accept that risk but mm-hmm. when you're a 60,000 barrel brewery or a 100,000 barrel brewery yeah. that risk is um a little bit um untenable yeah well asking for bad luck so <laughs> yeah we decided that we needed to separate. We either needed to stop doing it or we needed to build a separate building. And we opted to build our separate wild fruit cave. And so the wild fruit cave is set up with our oak, all whole bunch of oak tanks, 20 oak tanks, uh, and a packaging line in that room, a cool ship in that room. So when people brew these beers, our, all of our fruit beers, all of our, all of our, uh, Lambic style are what I call our American sour ales or our sour brown ales, uh, like, um, like Enigma or Old Bruin or sour brown ale. All of those beers are made in the wild fruit cave. So they're completely separate. The brewers that work in that room, they, they, they don't go back and forth. If you come to work in the morning and you're going to be working in the wild, what we call the wild fruit cave, you go home, you wash your clothes, you come the next morning if you're going to be in the, in the standard, in the uh, normal brew house. So, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's very much so the, um, the world's most beautiful quarantine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely. One of the things uh, I wanted to ask you about, and because and I, I just heard the story, you know, kind of secondhand, and, and it's one of my favorites because, A, you put it out as an R&D beer some years later, um, 
but just thinking about this idea of how early your sour program was going, how the, you know, the American, even in the craft beer, American beer drinkers weren't really kind of prepared for it exactly yet. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, Sour Porter, which I know is one of your favorite beers you brew? Yeah, I still have, uh, I still have nightmares about that. Uh, so, so the story goes that, uh, um, I mentioned that I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, Leafman's Golden Bond. I'm also a big fan of Rodenbach. And, um, I was reading a paper by a man, an Englishman named Wheeler, and he had written about the history of a Porter, English Porter, where it came from. And, uh, his thesis was that, a Rodenbach is a direct descendant of the original English porters. That brewing method was uh, was then lost in England, and the English moved on to what we now know the porter to be today. But in the old days, it was made in large oak vats, uh, just like Rodenbach, and it was uh, had somewhat of a of a sour twang to it, just mm-hmm. like Rodenbach. And it was it was a blend of beers. You know, it might be a blend of st- old beer and, and young beer, what was called stale beer and running beer, and they would be blended to create a appealing blend of sweet and sour. And um, that tradition moved to, to Belgium. And I thought, man, that's really cool. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Yeah. I'm going to brew, uh, I'm going to brew a, a porter and I'm going to age in an oak tank for an extended period of time for, I think over a year. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to brew some fresh Porter. I'm going to blend them together and see what I can come up with. Yeah. And so I did this and, uh, I thought it was really, really good. It, it was, a. um, I thought, yeah, this is perfect. Nailed it, it was, yeah, this is, uh, this is like a, a Flanders, uh, 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 brown ale or red ale. And so we, uh, released it, but, um, I, I, I made a mistake. I, I cajoled Deb into calling it, um, to, to be, because I'm a beer geek and to be technically correct um not a marketing person um called it uh old english porter and uh so in my naivete i thought that's technically a great name because it's an old english porter Mm -hmm. and but (laughs) but uh we had uh customers uh um were very angry because it's had a sour twang it was lactic and it was a mini amount of acetic acid so it was, uh, uh, if you weren't expecting it, it was, you know, pretty bracing. And so I had one guy write me a letter and he said, I, I'm from England. I'm, I'm from Yorkshire. I, I've grown up drinking Tadcaster Porter. This yeah. is not Tadcaster. This beer, this beer spoiled. Uh, is it, maybe it was a bad bottle, but, um, so I, I had some of those complaints from customers. And so we, we decided that, um, even though I really love this beer, it was on tap at Pumple's Tavern, which is a bar here in New Glarus. And um, I used to go and drink pints of it because I just loved the beer. But uh, because of the name, we we recalled the beer, which any brewer who's listening knows that anytime you do a recall, it's a it's humiliating, it's disruptive, it's expensive, it's something that you really really hate. And but we brought the beer back to the brewery, and we have a gift shop. We have a we have a um, beer we call Beer Depot where we sell beer. So we took these return pallets and we we put beer into our um, into our uh, into our beer depot. And Deb made a sign a sign that we put next to the stack of beer, and it had it had a man with uh, holding his hand out like a. You know, like like I don't know if you've seen the the going the wrong way on on the German autobahn. There's a 
picture of a man holding his hand up, kind of yelling no, yeah. and 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 with a with a circle and a red line through it. So and it said, uh, "Danger! Do not buy this beer. It is sour. It's supposed to taste this way. It's based on, uh, you know, an old tradition." Blah blah blah. And once we did that, and the and we communicated to people what it meant. Then uh, it sold really, really well. Uh, it sold out really quickly, and people loved it. So that was a lesson, really, in marketing. So essentially, you, I had to, you had to bring your baby home where it would be appreciated. Yeah, that's definitely. You sent it out in the big, scary world. <laughs> I had to come on home. Well, you're not the first person that's used the analogy of a brewer's baby. <laughs> so yes, that's true. So uh, and I was talking with Deb, trying to uh, prepare for this uh, episode and talking to you with about this. So I was sort of armed with as much uh, knowledge uh, as I could have going into it. She told me something interesting. Belgian red is essentially in some sort of covenant, right? Or some sort of... Yeah. <laughs> not, not a Wicca covenant. Not a Wicca covenant. No. You might be an alchemist, but... Yeah, yeah right, right. Uh, um, so, yeah, in... Um, uh, I, I, w- the Belgian Red was the first beer that was adopted into what was called the Ark of Taste. Mm-hmm. In Maybe the that's where we're getting covenant from. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, but Ark, like like the uh, like Noah's Ark. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Ark of Taste, what is a is a group of foods and beverages that have been uh, selected, nominated, grouped together by the slow food movement. And the slow food movement is something that came out of Italy in the 1980s when the fast food movement was really, you know, starting to, starting to take off. And there was, um, a fear among traditionalists, among, uh, traditional food manufacturers that they would be out competed by mm-hmm. some of these large industrial food manufacturers. So the slow food movement was an attempt to try to bring some uh, attention to this potential issue that people yeah. should be paying attention to what they eat, where it comes from, how it's made, uh, how the how the farmers are treated, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the slow food movement w- was you know, was kind of ahead of its time. And it's certainly nowadays people think about these sorts of things. But in those days, this was kind of a canary in the coal mine. But in 2000, uh, we were nominated and with three cheese, small artisan cheesemakers in Wisconsin, all four of us were, um, were, were added to this group, mm-hmm. um, uh, Arc of Taste. And, uh, we, we all, we had a, we had a, uh, party up in Madison and, and, uh, w- you know, we were all accepted in, in, uh, uh, as as part of this group, which is really cool, and what this is is a is is a group of uh, endangered or specialty producers that are producing something unique that is not um, that that is not that is not industrial. Yeah, and so. Uh, it was kind of cool uh, mm-hmm. that that we had we we were honored to, we were the first one in the slow food movement, and this was um, something that was very special to us because, you know, we were small. We were using uh, cherries from Door County, which there's not a lot. Yeah, uh, and um, it's a special 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 process. Oh yeah, and it's it's sort of you know recognition of uh, of of what you're doing. You know the the tradition you're you're sort of putting your stamp on you know? yeah exactly it was it was inspired by uh, others but it's really our own our own baby yeah and i know we're kind of running up against it but there is a like i said my education in sours really didn't start all together that long ago considering you know this just the span you've been making sours like i think 
you know, my first real introduction into sour beer was probably very sour blackberry, which um, I think I, it was either that or peach. I, I, you know, I always had a tradition of going and standing in line waiting for those beers. I yeah. loved doing yeah. that. And I love the, the fruit of the fruit forward dry beers. But as the years progressed, I found myself in that line, you know, waiting for a couple hours for vintage, <laughs> honestly, for, yeah. for the, the annual vintage. And I just think that's something so uniquely you that you would think to yourself, all right, yeah, you know, people love the fruited dry sours. But as part of my vision for this, I need to have this this running year tally of my, you know, my American sour ale kind of naked just as it is. So can you tell me a little bit about the vintage series and and where that sort of the yeah, inspiration we've been, for that came from? We've been brewing those beers. We started out, the first one I think was called Guza or Guz, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, that uh, uh, was, was, I think, over a decade ago mm-hmm. and uh we make we, so so we we make um a, a this this lambic style beer I, I i don't use the term lambic it's not on our label it's not it's not a word that i use other than to help people understand what it is what category it is it's an american sour ale uh and it's it's basically it's based on the on the lambic, the Belgian tradition, it's uh, made in the traditional way in a cool ship with aged tops and uh, oak tanks, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, and 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 we we brew this every year because we yeah. use this this beer in our making our fruit beers. And uh, so what I do every year, once a year, is I I look at all of the tanks because we have about twenty tanks, and they're any anywhere from five hectoliters. What's that? Four barrels up to. 40 barrel tanks or actually we actually have a 90 barrel tank too but in any event i i go around and i taste these beers and i i try to pick the ones that will blend together to make something that's unique mm-hmm. and um as a, as a blonde beer as a lambic style as a guza and we'll release it a small amount not yeah. much not much at all but it's uh, it's really uh, intriguing to me because it's a very difficult beer to make. Well, it's an easy beer to make, but it's very difficult to, to make wrangle. it to make to make it world class. Yeah. We we did win a um, a medal uh, in the in the lambic goods category. I don't know three years ago in Germany. Oh, cool. Um, for this beer, so we've had some success, and I'm learning every year. Um, it's it's a uh, brewing this type of beer is difficult because it it takes at least six months and more like a year to three or in some cases more than three years and then you have to blend them together and put them into a bottle and then they change in the bottle yeah so uh, it might take uh, uh might take two months six months it might take three years so it could be anywhere from a year to six years before the beer is ready to release so it's not like making an ale every 14 days and try this try that and you know keep keep working through it it takes time to get feedback so one has to take really good notes and i learn as i go but it's a really fun um randy and i and sam have a lot of fun um tasting these beers and thinking about what what tweaks we need to make and should we use red wheat should we use white wheat um at you know at what time of year should we brew uh how long should the boil be all of these there's so many tweaks that yeah. one can do when making um a relatively straightforward beer that make a huge impact on the taste well yeah and i'll, I'll just let you know i i appreciate that effort because i think that 
every year I think the vintage is one of the most subtly brilliant beers I have. And oh, well, I thanks. always look forward Thank to you. getting getting in line and getting that and getting that beer in specific. So um Dan, thank you for your time. I yeah. really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure we're going to visit the topic of sour beers again. Uh, as we've stated, there there are there is a lot of ground to cover here. And as we're, you know, we're seeing beers come up on the release schedule and stuff, I, w- I would love to talk Crambic. I, I would love to get into to some of this. Sure. Some of, the, some of the more specific ones. So sure. thank you again for your time. Thank you. 